I think we start with what are the problems that we need to solve? And the more precise we get about that question and our answer to it, the better off we are and the happier we are with the technology. Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice. This is Kat Moon, your host for this episode, and... Today, we are going to be a little contrarian. We are going to be talking about the intersection of innovation, technology, and creating access to legal services and legal help. But we're not going to be talking about artificial intelligence. Nope. This is the not AI technology episode. And joining me for what I think is a very important conversation are two folks who listeners are probably familiar with. Jane Ribadonera from Legal Services Corporation. She is the mastermind behind Innovations in Technology Conference coming up, ITC, which is happening in early February in Charlotte this year. Jane is joining us as well as Dennis Kennedy. And Dennis is a very well-known legal technology expert. He is a podcaster with the Kennedy Mile Report and a law professor, and um, he just knows his stuff. So here we go. Dennis and Jane are going to join me in this contrarian conversation about not AI technology. Hello, Jane and Dennis. Welcome to Talk Justice. Thanks so much for joining me today. And I want to jump right into this contrarian conversation we're going to have. Are you guys ready? Um, I love being a contrarian. (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. All right. So AI, artificial intelligence, specifically Gen AI, is taking up most of the oxygen in the room these days. And there are a lot of things we can do and are doing to better serve clients and scale access to justice and access to legal help that are not AI-centric. So I'm curious from your perspectives, what are some things we should be paying attention to and exploring in this intersection that are not AI? And Dennis, I would love to start with you. You know, I'm. this may be a surprise, and if it's a contrarian theme, but I think it's the approach that we have to look at. And so my approach to technology this year, which I advise to other people, is called small and simple. And when you think of AI, you think of other things. You say, what technology do I have to do? And I'm like, well, that's kind of led us to where we are and why everybody is so confused. I think we start with what are the problems that we need to solve? And as Clayton Christensen said, uh, phrased it in a way I love, what is the job to be done? And once we understand that, what are we hiring a specific technology to do for us and does it solve that job? 
And the more precise we get about that question and our answer to it, the better off we are and the happier we are with the technology. Now, having said that, I've been saying since, oh, let's say March of 2020, that the main thing we want to do with technology is to make it easy for clients and others to work with you. And you can adopt that approach. That's what I think of. And so when I, th I think about lawyers, I say, well, how do I make it just super easy for people to work with me? And so during the past four years, we've learned things like that people don't want to come to offices, might not be possible to do that. So how do we make it easy to work with you? Big one for me is, uh, for lawyers, is how do we make it easy for people to pay us and happily pay us? And <laughs> if I can illustrate one story, Kat, is a couple of years ago, I worked with a large law firm uh, on a personal matter, and they sent me a bill by mail. Um, actually, no, no, they sent it by email, to be fair to them. Um, and I went to pay it online, which I was happy to do the same day I got it. And there was no way for me to pay online with a credit card. So I had to figure out, like, where do I find a checkbook? Where do I find a stamp? Where do I find an envelope? And I thought about that, never got around to it. And so then I got, like, the reminder thing. And then I waited another week, and I finally put it together and sent them a check. Now, I don't think that's a great way to do it. I, you know, I, I worked at MasterCard, as you know, and I just think you need to make it really easy for people to pay you. And so... If you start to think along those lines and say, here's the problem that I have. I have people who don't pay me fast enough or they don't pay me at all. Like, how do I make it easy for them? Then you move to the technology. And I think there are a lot of options. Well, amen to making it easy. And, you know, I teach a course in human-centered design as applied to legal services delivery. So I agree with you wholeheartedly that you always start with the problem first. You know, go looking at the technology and work back from the problem. With that said, you know, I do think that there are technologies that suggest solutions. And I will also comment, like, I don't have a checkbook. So <laughs> I don't even know how I would get that accomplished. So I would be a terrible client if I couldn't pay you online. Thank you, Dennis. Jane, I would love to shift to you and your perspective because you have a great opportunity to kind of see what's happening specifically in the legal aid world to see what folks are doing to make legal services delivery better with technology, non-AI technology, since that's the, the topic of our conversation. What do you see happening out in the field, boots on the ground these days? Sure. Yeah. So at LSC, we fund technology initiative grants. And for about the last five years or so, we've been funding what we call technology improvement projects. And they're small grants, but uh, they're to do things like a technology assessment, a business process improvement, and even like assessing the skills of the lawyers within the legal aid office so that and, and there's their technology skills. So a lot of it kind of ties into what Dennis was saying, too, is that what technologies do we have available? How can we best use those technologies, make it easy for our own staff to use the technology, 
um, as well as the legal aid clients that are coming for assistance. You know, and, and the same thing, business process improvement. So you might have a lot of technology, but you're using it in a scattered way or there's a lot of process involved that doesn't make sense. So take a step back, have somebody come in, help you review all of the tools that you're using, all of the steps that you're taking, how can you improve your efficiency, your use of that technology, make sure everyone understands it uh, and there's some consistency and be able to know how to accomplish you know, your delivery in the most efficient and effective way possible. So that really harkens back to the foundational idea of people, process, and then technology, right? And while things don't necessarily go in this really clean, clear order, you really do need to start first with the people. Look at your process. Right. The change management as you're introducing new things. You know, you've got very, you know, sophisticated case management systems, you know, even you know, who's using uh, Microsoft Word and Microsoft Office to its full extent. So ensuring that people know those skills and are, and are using it. Some of the other tools we're starting to see people then take a look at are, you know, other things that can increase their efficiency. So, you know, going back to, you know, document assembly, you know, that's a tool that's been around for over 20 years. Legal aid programs have used it to try and help clients create documents on their own for self-help. But we're finally seeing some traction in organizations building tools for their internal staff to use. You know, how can you connect it to your case management system and make it easy for the attorneys to use the document assembly There's always been kind of that, is it worth the effort to do it as opposed to taking a pleading that you've had and saved and then do find and replace, which is, I think, the more common kind of old school way of creating new pleadings versus uh, a document assembly, which can be automated, save time. And we're starting to see the attorneys asking for these tools and making better use of those as well. So, Jane... I have to tell you that I've been practicing law for more than 25 years now. And for at least 15 of those years, I have been urging my fellow attorneys to please not create documents by opening up the last one that they drafted and doing a find and replace. And it truly, I I am not exaggerating when I use the words mind boggling. It is mind boggling to me that we are sitting here in 2024 in the age of tools like ChatGPT and discussing the fact that attorneys still need to be brought along to use document assembly. So that point, though, in document assembly, I think is a great example that there is technology that has been available for a number of years. I think document assembly a good 15 years, and it's gotten really good. Ken, if I can interrupt, I can talk your story because the first time I implemented document assembly at the law firm I was at was in 1990, which um, I'm willing to say was 34 years ago, and it worked really well. And one of my favorite points to make when people talk about using uh, GPT to generate new documents is that the document assembly tools are going to do it way better 
for you. And I think that's an example of if we dive down into what the actual job we want to do, then document assembly starts to make sense for certain things and that AI and other things don't make sense for for things. And so I've spent more than 30 years trying to convince people. And Catherine Banfer recently did a, a great post about how why lawyers won't go to document assembly, which is is totally right, but it's still a hard sell, but it makes so much sense. And like I said, if you back down to the fundamental questions of how do I make it easy for clients to work with you, clients expect lawyers to push a button and generate their documents. So they don't like the fact that we charge them for custom drafting. And they compare to patient portals and the doctor's world, other things we do. Those are the technologies and the user experiences that legal clients would like to see. And they're fairly straightforward to do. So those are the areas, the technologies I would like to see lawyers focus on in the coming years. And those really have nothing to do at all with AI. They're just straight user experience. Exactly. And I think document assembly is also a great example of a technology that applies for client-facing and consumer-facing delivery, as well as internal. Jane, your point, um, you've seen legal aid organizations using document assembly to empower clients to help themselves. Then the epiphany, oh, maybe we can use (laughs) these tools too for our, our internal work. And so a lot of flexibility and applicability there, right? So I call it an OG legal technology, right? Document assembly. So, okay, the Innovation in Technology Conference is coming up, Jane, and that's really focusing fully on kind of a, a wide range of technology and innovations that can move the needle, in improving service, improving access. So what's teed up at ITC 2024 that is not AI? Well, there's a lot. Actually, there's there's only about four to six. We have over 55 sessions, uh, breakout sessions at the conference coming up February 1st through the 3rd in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And I think AI will be woven into more of them, but a lot of the focus this year, we're seeing a lot of sessions on uh, using data, data analytics, how are programs taking all of this data that, I mean, legal aid programs collect an enormous amount of data and how do they determine impact and outcomes? So there's there's a number of, of sessions looking at the best ways of, of using data there's a lot of new programs around eviction and housing, and you know data is tied into that as well as technology tools. How are some of the courts uh, reorganizing and being able to help with some of the you know eviction courts? Or also, there's a whole group of sessions on legal design, changing kind of the the underlying design, which is what we've been talking about. You know how regulatory reform is tying into some of those, the ability for some of those changes, you know, looking at using non-lawyer advocates, you know, frontline justice workers in helping to do more service delivery. 
the Utah Sandbox. Uh, there'll be a session, some some folks from, from Utah. And also, you know, what we've been talking about is just kind of the basic infrastructure and technology for advocates. How do you do knowledge management the best? Um, using SharePoint, uh, setting up your system. And then, of course, cybersecurity, moving to the cloud, making sure organizations are as uh, secure as possible and improving their security. So those are, those are some of the, the main topics that we're seeing. And, you know, like I said, there's maybe AI woven into some of them, but a lot of them are just pure, you know, technology and best practices. And that is a very impressive number of sessions that you have planned. I'm very much looking forward to that. Although I will be doing a small plug for the Talk Justice conversation. We are going to have, I think on Friday at ITC, that will be about AI. Sorry, it's not going to be contrarian. But um, that full range of sort of technologies and opportunities to dig into these foundational technologies leads me to ask Dennis if you could share some thoughts on other resources folks could tap into who are interested, who might not be lucky enough to attend ITC this year, but folks who are interested in, you know, let's call them the foundational legal technologies, right? Can you recommend some some places people can go to explore and learn more? Yeah, I mean, I think there's the sort of standard places, you know, so there's the ABA Tech Show, Legal Resource Center, Nikki Shaver's doing this totally cool thing called Legal Tech Hub. You can find a lot of things. Unfortunately, Legal Tech Twitter has kind of been destroyed mm. by Elon, and and so we're waiting to see how that reforms. But I, I think in a, a lot of places, you're going to have to rebuild because the traditional places have... I'm not saying they've collapsed, but they've been under stress over the, the last four years. And then I think with the past year, everybody wanted to jump on the AI bandwagon. It's gotten to be super confusing. And so, again, I think you're looking for basic frameworks. And then, as in all things, we're trying to think critically, learn who we can trust, what makes sense, what doesn't. And so I look at the frameworks for me are, we do have this notion of the ethical duty of technology competence, which I like to stress to lawyers says we must consider the benefits and risks of relevant technologies. And lawyers are great at risks, but they're not so good at benefits. What I would say is you want to, your best resource is your consumers, your users, your clients. And what I find is they are just not in the conversations. And so you wanna see what's happening in the customer world, in the consumer technology space, what people are actually using. If you see everybody in the world on smartphones and you're in a court system where uh, a judge says no smartphones allowed in the courthouse, period, that's a big disconnect that we need to deal with. Because one thing we learned over the last four years is that remote appearances matter. 
They have a positive effect on the court system and on the people who use it, and it's dramatic. And I think about that a lot as, as I see that we have a system that forces people into this choice of saying, I need to appear in a court that's intimidating to me. I don't know exactly how long I'm going to be there. And as a matter of public health, it's probably not safe for me to be there. I don't know how long I'm going to be there. And I have to take off work to go to this hearing that I don't know what's going to happen. If I take off work, I might get fired. And in the U.S., if I lose my job, I lose my health insurance. And so my choice is, do I take on those consequences or do I risk having some bench warrant issued for my arrest? And that's a terrible place that we've put people. When the solution, the technology solution to that is, is pretty straightforward in allowing remote appearances in a lot of cases. So I think you were looking at those frameworks and then uh, as, as was mentioned, I think the cybersecurity framework uh, is another one that's incredibly important as more and more private data goes across our systems and lawyers tend to be the weak links. And then, Kat, I can't have a conversation with you about contrarian things without using the, the phrase, burn it down. But I think we need to burn, <laughs> to burn down the silos between the legal mm -hmm. profession and the consumers of what the legal profession provides to people. I notice this a lot in sort of miniature in the legal education space where I hear faculty, and this could be about AI, it could be about technology in general. There are a lot of discussions about what, what needs to be done about technology for students and the people who aren't at the table are the students. Yeah. And then most of the discussions about legal technology and think about it, if you're making decisions at a firm or an organization and you're, if you look around the table and there's no customer there, no user of the service, you're making a big mistake. And if you haven't done the thing with the people always recommend is that if you don't come with fresh eyes to what you're providing to people through technology and understand what their experience is, you're really missing the opportunity to understand the really big improvements you can make simply and quickly. That's a great point. I was going back to uh, some of the business process improvement things that, that legal aid organizations are doing. A lot of them revolve around intake and client intake process. And it's that having the legal aid programs go through the client journey, looking at what steps do clients have to take and how much burden is it for them to, you know, be calling, you know, multiple organizations, retelling stories that are, you know, they're often, you know, under stress and trauma and the burden that it puts and being able to, you know, look at that holistically. How can they make improvements in the system? How can organizations work together? We're seeing you know, more kind of referral systems trying to help do those referrals and warm handoffs and kind of lessening that burden on clients as well. And the other piece is I think that legal services does a great job in these in these areas. Uh, but they're the area they cover is fairly limited. And 
the real area of concern I have, and from talking and doing some work with judges recently, is self-represented litigants, which the stats on that are just astonishing. How many people are self-represented? In rural areas, you might be in a county where there is one lawyer. And there are technology solutions, and we need to move quickly because people are having problems. And technology these days is bringing us face-to-face with some very fundamental issues. And I think the most fundamental for me is that we have lots of complex systems that are breaking down and dysfunctional and we're trying to apply band-aids and point solutions and i might be able to do some document assembly but it's not going to do that much to you know actually fix the entire problem but for what i'm able to do it may be a great solution dennis yes i mean i think that individually we can focus on doing what we can where we are with what we have, we absolutely can have agency and take individual action. And and that might be spearheading introduction of document assembly, for example. And that might feel like a Band-Aid because the macro, the big, is the fact that what you just described is that we are operating within, we're trying to keep and prop up systems that were designed to serve a society in the second industrial revolution, which ended more than a hundred years ago. So as we are now in the fourth industrial revolution, probably barreling into what someone is going to call the fifth industrial revolution very quickly, we are literally light years ahead of where we were when these systems were created. And clearly technology is part of the reason why things are breaking down and it has to be part of our solution. So it's a unique opportunity here in time. Um, And so much of it, I think both the individual actions that we can take, do what we can with what we have where we are, and the actions we can come together and take collaboratively to perhaps make systems change, which we all know is a lot harder and takes longer. But I think the prime for the pump, what can get us there across both the micro and the macro, have a lot to do with our mindsets, right? So you both have been describing the mindsets of human-centered design. So Dennis, you said fresh eyes, bringing a beginner's mind. That's one reason why I love working with law students because frankly, they're not jaded the way we are having tried to make a difference for decades and seeing frankly, seemingly very little forward motion, you know, bringing fresh eyes, a beginner's mind, Yeah, they're key. And both of you have hit on this. And I don't know that anyone's used the word empathy, but it really is. We have to find a way to both create with the people who we're problem solving for, right? Clients, but not just clients. Because Dennis, you mentioned self-represented litigants. These folks aren't our clients. But as a profession, we have decided that we are the only people who can help other people with their legal problems Yet we do not have to help anyone. We can decide to help, but we don't have to. And so I think that, frankly, puts an ethical obligation on us to help figure out how we can help the people who aren't technically our clients. And technology clearly offers tremendous opportunity there. And Jane, you referred to legal aid organizations who have been working for years to automate document creation so that self-represented litigants can 
you know, access and understand processes and documents and help themselves. So this idea of empathy, getting folks who are having experience in the legal problems around the table, and also it's our own mindset. Instead of coming at a problem solely from the lawyerly perspective, how can we come at a problem with the client's perspective? We can never fully understand what they're experiencing, but we can work a lot harder <laughs> to put ourselves in their shoes. And, you know, the most exquisite piece of technology, if it doesn't do the job that the client needs doing, is useless, absolutely useless, regardless of right. the technology it's based upon, right? Whether it's a simple document assembly program or a very sophisticated generative AI platform, you've got to start with the job to be done and make sure that it meets those particular needs. Well, I'm curious, since we're talking about mindsets, if any others spring to your mind, any advice you would give to folks out there who are really eager to adopt the right mindsets so that at the very least they can have their own individual agency and make a small dent in the universe with innovation and technology. Well, I, I tell my students that one of the things I like about the legal profession is a creative, at its best, it's a creative profession and that it turns you into a lifelong learner. And I think that if you accept that, and kind of revel in that, that's a great thing. The other thing is I think we really need to look at what's happening outside the profession. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, the medical profession, one of the first things they did was they allowed doctors to practice across state lines in recognition of what the issues were. Legal profession, we're really dug in on state regulation in an internet world. So I think one is important to see what's going on in the adjacent professions. And then I think it's it's really important to look at what used to be called the mega trends, but sort of what's actually happening in the world. We know that in the legal system, language and literacy are problems. We know that there is one set of justice for people who have money and one set of justice for people who don't. We know the population is aging. We know there's migration for climate and other reasons. This stuff is coming and it raises issues in rural areas. I don't know, as I get older, I just see all the legal issues that face the elderly, um, especially mm -hmm. as they decline. Uh, the amount of fraud that happens against the elderly. And I don't know what we're able to do about that. And it's not a great solution as we've kind of done as a profession to say, if we can kind of push that over to somebody else, that's okay. So when I look at the self-represented litigant, again, having worked with judges, I, I say, you know what? What we've done as a profession is we successfully pushed off this issue onto judges and, and court personnel. And so they're dealing with the consequences of this every day. And the statistics, which I invite people to look at, are just shocking in some cases. Like how many really significant family law and other matters that people are self-represented, 
who they're not allowed to even have like a trusted friend or family member with them. It's a really difficult situation that we put people in. And the number of people, the percentage of people who, and again, estimates here, who probably have mental issues or self-represented is going to blow your mind when you see it. I think you've identified a really important and troubling issue, Dennis, with self-represented litigants and yeah, how many folks just don't have. We know statistically from you know research that Legal Services Corporation has conducted that the vast majority of people, especially with limited means, get no meaningful assistance from a licensed lawyer. Um, and yet, we don't, in most places, let anyone else help. And I just want to point out, you mentioned, you know, folks can't rely on a friend or really get any support, right, in that moment. This is another area in which we could look at adjacent jurisdictions, for example. We could look up to Canada, um, the CRT Civil Resolutions Tribunal that has been created, which specifically authorizes folks to collaborate with non-lawyers to help them get through certain kinds of civil legal matters, um, all kinds of examples. And I think I want to jump back to ITC really quickly, Jane, because I think another mindset that comes to mind for me is experimentation. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about this conference is that many of the sessions are conducted by people who are trying things, right? They are trying to create better service, create access through experiments, whether it's with process or technology, and they are there to share about essentially their experiments so that others can learn. And so I'm hoping that that experimental mindset can be something that, you know, kind of catches much like a virus, right? <laughs> Maybe we all get the virus of the experimental mindset. But that, that definitely comes to mind as, and you do a tremendous job, I think, designing the sessions in a way that really gives people an opportunity to be exposed to the infectiousness of those experimental mindsets. Yeah, thank you. And I throw it back to, it's the community, yeah. you know, who's doing these things and, and letting us, you know, wanting to share and being collaborative. The other thing I would throw out in there as we go to experimenting is the importance of partnerships and partnerships with technology companies. And we are starting to see a growth in the justice technology field of companies that are coming up and, and being focused on both technology and access to justice. Uh, you know, the Justice Technology Association, you know, every day I'm, I'm hearing about new companies and new startups that are joining that. And we have a number of them who are participating, you know, at the conference as well. And being able to, to have those, you know, partnerships across legal aid, across the private sector, you know, with pro bono, how can technology be used? And, and I think that's a, a opportunity as well to collaborate with the tech experts. That is another human-centered design mindset, radical collaboration. Absolutely. Can I jump in and say something that I think a lot of the focus these days is what the billion dollar legal tech companies are doing, frankly, mm -hmm. and that in the justice tech space, in the immigration space, there are some really cool technology developments that people should be paying attention to. And so I would say instead of figuring out 
like what the issues might be with using AI for legal research. You take a look at what Greg Siskind is doing in immigration law. If you look at what Natalie and Thornton is doing, uh, you look at some of these other things that are happening in the technology space, some of the experiments that judges are doing in rural areas. Take a look at that and learn the lessons from that, both successes and failures, and stop like following the big money. Let them learn their own lessons. Amen. I think that's a good note to end on. Any parting words of inspiration either of you care to offer? Yeah, we, we will be uh, live streaming two sessions of, of across the board uh, throughout the conference, throughout uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So go to the LSC's social media pages, our Facebook page, and uh, find links to the, those live streams for anyone who can't be there in person. Yeah, I, I wouldn't agree. I, I also encourage all conferences to do way more live streaming, but there's so much information out there live streamed and don't just stick in the legal space. And um, I told Kat I'd be contrarian on this, but spend the $20 a month for uh, Chad GPT-4 and, um, <laughs> and use it in this very fundamental way to say, what are my clients and what are my consumers' concerns? What are the problems they face? And keep working with it. I, I like to think of it as conversational AI as opposed to generative AI. It's really good at coming up with ideas and just ask it to give you ideas for what you might do with technology to help them. Some of them are going to be good. Some are going to be bad. Just keep kind of working on it and you're going to come up with a nice list of three ideas that you can do earlier this year. And then it will tell you, it will give you like a project plan for, you know, putting those together with metrics and stuff and you're off to a start, you know, and it's easy to like, let the AI do the work for you. You just couldn't help yourself, could you, Dennis? Never can. (laughs) (laughs) So I happen to agree completely. I actually think if folks would stop thinking about using generative AI for legal research and think instead about using it to help them address these very human-centered problems, then they might actually get a lot out of it. So I I second that recommendation. Um, Well, I'm looking forward to, I don't know if our conversation for Talk Justice midday on Friday of ITC is going to be live streamed, but it will be published on Legal Talk Network, so folks can catch that conversation, which will be about AI after the conference. But thank you both so very much for joining me today for this contrarian conversation. It has been so much fun, very enlightening. I hope listeners have learned a few things as well. And I really appreciate it, guys. I look forward to having another conversation again very soon. Thanks so much. And if I can say, uh, tell your listeners, keep an eye on what we're doing at uh, Michigan State University Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation. I think you're going to see some cool things happening there. We're all watching, Dennis. And Jane, I will see you in less than a month at ITC. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Kat. I am grateful to Jane and Dennis for joining me for this contrarian conversation about not AI in legal technology. And to highlight a couple of things from our conversation, first, LSE's 
Innovations and Technology Conference is happening February 1st through February 3rd in Charlotte. If you can't make it to the conference in person, as Jane said, you can follow along with live streams of sessions. Check out lsc.gov for information on how to do that. Also, listen to Dennis Kennedy's podcast if you are interested in legal technology. The Kennedy Mile Report is a fantastic resource. It is also on the Legal Talk Network. Highly recommend it. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Talk Justice is brought to you by Legal Services Corporation and Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to rate and review the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.